Strong voices. It's not just about one state. It's not just about one community. It's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order. I am here and now, and I speak my language. I practice my cultural essence of me. What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialized logics are inscribed upon our bodies and to critically examine them in order to change it. The government's changed, but we've got to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years and I don't think we're going to go anywhere. What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Hello, good morning and welcome to Strong Voices. We're coming to you live from the Calm Radio Studios here on Arunda Country in Central Australia and broadcasting to all nations through Vast Channel 911 on Aiken FM here in Alice Springs and Bantua. We're also coming to you uh, online via our Karma website at karma.com.au. Uh, today is, of course, Tuesday, the 10th of September 2019. I'm your host, Carl Dowling. You'll have my company on the program today up until 12 o'clock. Well, coming up on the show today, the outgoing Deputy Lord Mayor of Sydney says a set of rarely used ceremonial chains are racist and has actually put forward a motion at last night's uh, council meeting that they will be officially retired from future use. We're going to be hearing from the Deputy Lord Mayor, Linda Scott, this morning. Also, today does mark uh, 30 years on from the uh, from when the Jawan people in the of the Catherine region were actually uh, granted their land back after they put their uh, land claim in in March of 1978. So it was more than a 10-year process to get that land back, but it's been 30 years since they've been uh, joint managing the park now known as Nimbaluk, and. Uh, Today does actually mark that 30-year uh, milestone, so the celebrations there happening at the moment during the uh, Nipmuc Festival. And today we're going to be hearing from uh, Jack R. Kitt, who's an advisor to the Jowan Association. He's going to be explaining a bit about the history that went into uh, that land claim, uh, what was some of the opposition that they faced within the community, and what that determination has actually meant for the community all these years on and for the Jowan people, of course. Today we're also going to be hearing about the movement to rewrite the words of the Australian National Anthem to be more inclusive of the country's First Nations peoples. That'll be coming up, that'll be uh, in two parts of the interview this morning. And we're of course as well going to be hearing the very latest in uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country. But first, here's a track from uh, Busby Morrell. This is uh, Biding My Time. What's up? You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. Yes, that's right. You're listening to Strong Voices here on Calm Radio this Tuesday morning. We're heading into our first story now. The outgoing Deputy Lord Mayor of Sydney says a set of rarely used ceremonial chains are racist. And uh, she put forward a motion at last night's council meeting that they be officially retired from future use. Deputy Lord Mayor Linda Scott says the depiction of a First Nations person standing alongside a a colonialist with the words, I take but I surrender, invokes values that are not consistent with a progressive city like Sydney. Linda Scott is talking here with Karma's Paul Wiles. 
When I was first elected a year ago as the Deputy Lord Mayor, I certainly wasn't even aware there were chains in existence. So it came as quite a surprise to me that there uh, were chains in existence. Uh, some months ago, I was asked to wear the chains as part of a formal ceremony here at the City of Sydney. And I became quite alarmed when I saw them for the first time and read not only uh, that they said on them, I take but I surrender, but they also had this really very outdated motif uh, of an Aboriginal man standing across from a man dressed as a colonial white settler. Uh, it's also got a picture of a tall white ship on it and a knight's head. So really, I think, pretty outdated for Sydney, a place that we think is really a very progressive, inclusive, multicultural place. And so it certainly was the case as, as soon as I saw those chains that I resolved in my own mind to move to retire them noting that they were really not in line with the progressive values uh, for a place like the City of Sydney. Again, when we look at the wording, I take but I surrender, having a quick check on the City of Sydney's webpage, it, it said it was meant to imply that the early settlers came to New South Wales and took the land, but in doing so, they also gave it back. More than ambiguous, I think, uh, in, in this day, most people would see that as being incorrect. Certainly my first impression was that the chains were racist. I absolutely understand that other people might have different interpretations and, as you say, the city's website notes another interpretation. Uh, but I think for the majority of people, when they do look at these chains, the first impression is one that is not positive and it's not something that reflects the current values of uh, the City of Sydney. And that's why I think we shouldn't pretend that this hasn't happened. We shouldn't cover it up. We should be truthful and honest about our history and we should tell the stories of the kinds of historical attitudes that perhaps people had in the City of Sydney, but also retire these chains uh, in 2019. I don't think it is appropriate to have this kind of symbol uh, for the Deputy Lord Mayor or indeed the Lord Mayor of the City of Sydney, uh, it should be retired and we should be able to uh, move forward with something that better represents the values of our city and our nation. I'm sure there'll be some critics out there who will say, well, look, you're being a bit uh, overly sensitive and overly politically correct. This was worded with the intent of what we have spoken of and, uh, you know, other people would say, well, 220-odd years later, uh, it's time to move on. I think it's very important that our council has a great practical program of reconciliation in action. That means making sure that we continue to look for employment opportunities for uh, the best and the brightest. That means we have many Aboriginal people working for the City of Sydney, look for opportunities to have culturally aware uh, and really uh, fantastic events and also consultations. We're currently undertaking the consultation for our Sydney 2050 strategy and a key underpinning of that is uh, speaking with our Indigenous community to talk to them about how they see the future of Sydney. Uh, we're doing lots of practical things. We're talking to our communities as well. Uh, I think this is one small step. However, that is a very important step towards recognising that Sydney is a progressive place. Uh, it should not have motifs or symbols or Deputy Lord Mayoral chains that could be perceived to be racist. It's time to put the things in a cabinet, reflect on our history uh, and move on in a more positive and inclusive fashion.
questions. And having said that, looking at some of the uh, motifs uh, on the city of Sydney and the stained glass windows, huge pictures of uh, Captain Cook and obviously the amount of effort that has gone into telling this story, uh, there's quite a bit of catch-up to do. There's a lot of catch-up to do to make sure that we are telling the true and full history of Australia, which includes the 60,000 plus years of First Nations peoples and their culture and history. It is going to be so important, uh, both because actually so many people are interested in these stories. We've got tourists coming to Sydney from all over the world who want to have really authentic cultural experiences with our First Nations peoples. Um, We are in the process of commissioning uh, a new piece of art down on the harbour which is a beautiful cultural piece reflecting uh, some of the fishing practices of our First Nations Australians in the harbour in Sydney. We've got another very evocative piece of art that's been installed quite recently to commemorate the First Nations soldiers who were killed uh, fighting for their nation, in some cases tragically before they were even recognised as citizens. So the City of Sydney uh, I'm uh, a part of is very, very focused on making sure we tell the whole truth, the whole history of our place and our home, but that also means not having uh, Deputy Lord Merrill Chains or Lord Merrill Chains that also don't reflect uh, the city as it is today in 2019. Growing up, what did you learn about the First Nations peoples? I mean, we know for the last decade there's been a fair bit of discussion uh, around the black armband history of this country but for you growing up did you learn any of the history? I was very lucky growing up I learnt from uh, school the white ship version of Australian history and I certainly remember the bicentennial celebrations in 1988 being very focused on the tall white ships and Captain Cook's arrival but I learnt from my friends and my friends parents uh, who were Aboriginal about um, some of their stories from their families about the history of Australia So I was very lucky that I heard all sides of the history, uh, but I certainly didn't receive it always as part of my fantastic education. I think it's really important now that we tell the truth, that we make sure we recognise the truth of what happened in the story of Australia up until today. It's been fantastic to see so much community support for retiring these Deputy Lord Merrill chains. It's certainly promoted a lot of debate and I'm sure it will continue to, uh, but it's been fantastic to see a support from all across the country for ensuring that um, our representations, be it in a, you know, Lord Merrill chains or uh, in our artworks or in anything else that we do as a council, be a reflection of our current progressive values. That was the outgoing Deputy Lord Mayor of Sydney, Linda Scott, who was speaking with Karma's Paul Wiles. We're going to be hearing very soon about the movement to rewrite the words of the Australian National Anthem very soon. But before then, we're going to go to a quick break and then we'll be right back after this. Hi, my name's Alan Pedersen and you're listening to Come Radio, Strong Voices on 810 FM. Well, the original four-verse Australian Anthem was written by Scottish colonial patriot uh, Peter Dodds McCormick back in 1878. And since then, the anthem has been changed a few times. But for 35 years, Australians have been singing Advance Australia Fair as our national anthem. Questions are being raised, though. Does the anthem truly include all Australians? At the 2019 Desert Song Festival in Abantuala Springs, festival patrons were the first to hear the new Advance Australia Fair. Karma's Damien Williams spoke with uh, Dr Martin Haskett from the Recognition Recognition in Anthem Project 
and asked him how he got involved with rap. Well, I became involved from two points of view. One was a desire to see change in the anthem, which I'd been conscious of. And secondly, the person who founded Recognition Anthem Project is a lifelong friend. So it was an easy step to move into that committee and contribute because I could see what he was doing and uh, he'd gathered around him a committee which was mainly Indigenous people. And so that seemed to me to have the right feel about it and also to be a, a good way that we could progress the process. So I joined in. How did it come about? Well, the starting point in 2017 is hard to be precise about, other than to know that um, the, the founder of the group, Peter Vickery, um, has a home in Tumut in New South Wales, and working with the local Indigenous group there, he became aware of the the problems that the wording of the anthem was causing and became uh, conscious that perhaps he could do something to help change it. And um, hence the, the launch of this project was actually in the Tumut area with Sue Bulger giving a, uh, an opening to it. Can you tell us a bit about the origins of the anthem? Well, the origins of the anthem are really known to very few people. And it's a story that goes back to the beginning of the late 19th century, 20th century, when patriotic songs had a real purpose and people used to do a lot of singing in their homes and their communities around the place. And so uh, the song arose as a way of creating um, feeling and patriotism within the principally British community that, that was running Australia at the time. And the verses written were written with that purpose to, to emphasise our affiliation with Britain and to try and get people to feel that they could be patriots. So clearly that was a long time ago and a lot of things have changed. At one point in history, a bit further on, there was a change made to the wording and in fact it was actually to probably beef up its Britishness a bit and those words then persisted. But we need to remember that at that time, this was not the national anthem. Advance Australia Fair was a patriotic song. The national anthem was God Save the Queen. And when the Whitlam era came to, to, to be and much change was happening to Australian values and thinking, he initiated a process which was to develop a true Australian national anthem. Uh, he was not able to see that through, but then Malcolm Fraser took the, took the running with it and a plebiscite referendum was held to choose a tune for our own national anthem. It was envisaged at the time that God Save the Queen would still be the anthem if the Queen or a vice-regal person was present, but that on all other occasions, and all of us are familiar with the singing of the national anthem at, say, a football final, um, on those occasions we would have our own anthem, not God Save the Queen. And so rather than make a decision by themselves, the Fraser government put up several tunes for a, um, a public choice to give people a chance to choose the tune. They were conscious that they weren't 
going to um, create a set of words immediately. Now, Advance Australia Fair came out a very clear winner. 45% of people preferred that tune. And so that was then a, an agreed position. But what wasn't agreed was the words. And it took another many years before, uh, under the Prime Ministership of Bob Hawke, a group of people were sat down in a room and asked to change the words of Advanced Australia Fair. And they made very substantial changes to it. And in those changes, we got the Advanced Australia Fair that has been sung as our national anthem for the last uh, 25, 30 years. Now, from that point, we have become aware that not only did the, the words of the Advanced Australia Fair not fairly represent all people in this country, but it actually created hurt. It was causing people to feel that they were left out, that they were being somehow forgotten. And the, the principal word that was of concern to people was the word young, because clearly this is not a young country. And everyone is now able to understand that. This, this has been a country full of nations for 60,000 years. So why was that word young in there? And it had some quite clear ramifications. Um, for example, Deborah Cheatham was asked to sing at the AFL Grand Final, to sing Advance Australia Fair, and she said, I can't. I don't want to sing that word. I don't want to sing that anthem. Um, even more recently, we've had examples where footballers have declined to, to participate in this so-called national anthem. And... Uh, They've, there's even been suggestions that they didn't get selected because they weren't prepared to do that. So we know that there is a significant uh, problem. It's not just about change. It's about trying to correct something which is not right. Um, so with Recognition and Anthem Project, we set out to fix that first. So that was the ambition to make it an acceptable anthem, particularly relating to the Indigenous history of this country. We also recognise that um, a very vast number of the people who live here in Australia now are not born in Australia. They come from all over the world. So we didn't want to um, include one group and exclude others. <laughs> so the idea of the anthem now is that it is a um, three-verse anthem uh, with the potential that all people could sing it on all occasions. Now, we understand that it's not often that three verses get sung, but on the other hand, if we had the three verses that we would like to see incorporated, um, then quite possibly we would have very rousing performances. And um, the reason I'm here at this time is for the premiere of our version of the National Anthem at the Desert Song Festival. Um, Morris Stewart, who is the director, very readily agreed to include it in the repertoire for this. And we thought this was an absolutely fantastic opportunity. Like, we couldn't really imagine anything better than to see this anthem launched in the centre of Australia by an Aboriginal women's choir. That seemed to us to be perfect. Um, the response that we've seen at the two events where it's been sung has been overwhelmingly in favour. The applause is prolonged and loud and people quite clearly are happy that there is change. So 
what the next step is is to actually get that change to occur. Um, the RAP group don't think we have an absolute uh, mortgage on exactly what the word should be and we're happy to listen to people's ideas. So, um, you know, when as this hopefully gets promulgated around, we'll hear people say, well, that bit could sound better if it was this or that and those things are quite feasible to be incorporated. So it's not as though we have a single mind about this. That was Dr. Martin Haskett from the Recognition and Anthem Project. Uh, speaking with Karma's Damien Williams, we're going to be hearing the second part of that interview shortly. We're just going to go to a quick break now, and then we'll be right back. Strong Voices. That's right. You're listening to Strong Voices. Uh, a little bit earlier, we heard uh, Karma's Damien Williams speaking with Dr. Martin Haskett from the Recognition and Anthem Project, also known as RAP. And I was talking about uh, the movement to rewrite the words of the Australian National Anthem to be more inclusive of the country's First Nations peoples. We're going to go back into that interview now. Here's the second part of that chat. Trying to get input from the whole country or, or people around who want and want to have their say. Do you think that will sort of like slow the process down or do you think it, it could just, yeah, well, do you think it muddle it a bit? It could do. And um, for that reason, we need somebody within government to buy into this or we need a lot of people to get behind it and say we want this to happen now and it's important to make the point that it doesn't require a great deal of of discussion on the part of government it can be legislated within federal parliament and proclaimed. It doesn't require another referendum or plebiscite. It doesn't require a lot of uh, toing and froing, as you suggest. We, we would hate to see this disappear down the burrow of consultation processes. Mm. However, we do want to make sure that people understand that if they have a contribution, we would like to listen to it. But fundamentally, we want this to happen. We want to get on with it. Um, we think there's no real impediment. Um, if I could emphasise the fact that in this version, we are only changing one word in the first verse, which is the one commonly sung. And that one word is the offensive one, which is young. So if we change that to uh, one, um, then we will hopefully have buy-in from everyone. That that will mean people will say, yes, this is expressing what we feel much better. And they don't have to change their mind about everything else. They just have to have that one little change. We are passionate about the other two verses because they do go on to express the the history of the Indigenous occupation of this land and you know we would hope that in some ways that were the first verse uh, it would actually work well for us if that were but um, you know that's not necessarily uh, part of what we're promulgating and, and so how did the words come about uh, the honorable peter vickery wrote, wrote the words how did that how did that process okay well of... that process has been a, a very consultative one already because peter has written um the words, and he's then put them out to a very large number of people within his known circle and to others, um, members of parliament even, and said, have a look at this and tell me what you think. And there has already been a very significant rewrite and rewrite. He has had lots of opinion coming in and he's responded to that. He's not sitting on this as a, you know, this is my, my song and I want it sung this way. It's actually that he is saying, tell me how we make this right. And so um, I think it's been through eight or nine different iterations. <laughs> and uh, we have have come to this one now, believing that 
this is really the one that we now need to show the general public um, and, and hopefully um, we'll, we'll get that to sort of happen through things like the Desert Song Festival. We have also, um, you know, there's many other, you know, community singing and singing in general is becoming a big part of Australia's life. And there's lots of opportunities for people to take on this song and sing it um, for just the kind of enthusiasm it can generate in a crowd. So we're hoping that will happen. You know, judging by the response here in the uh, Desert Song Festival, do you think Australia is ready to have this new anthem? I think Australia is definitely ready. We, as a country, don't often make a lot of our symbols, but on the occasions that we do, I think it's important to people, and so I think we are ready. If we look at the response to it here again, um, the publication of an article in the ABC uh, News had over 100,000 people look at it. I mean, there's lots of people who've clicked on that word anthem saying, yes, I'm interested in this topic. I'd like to know what can be done about it. Um, social media response has likewise been generally 90% positive. So, I mean, I think those those facts alone speak to the, the need for change. Um, a, a Liberal uh, member of Federal Parliament, Craig Kelly, has spoken in favour of change of that one word. Um, he suggested it be strong and free, but we would still prefer we are one and free. What are your lines that really stick out to you that, that really resonate with you? Okay. The one at the top of the second verse, which is for 60,000 years or more, and that word, when, when I start to sing that, I feel something rise up within me. And the words at the end of the second verse, which are about from peoples all over the world, where we're saying that no matter where you've come from, if you are now here and are wanting to be part of this community, then... Um, you should you should join in and sing with us. So those two were those two lines particularly uh, are important to me. In the third verse, um, there is mention of the troubles that Australia gets into, which it's currently very much desperately into, with drought and fire and flood. I mean, we've had all of that happening, and what happens in this country is that people come together and help those who are needing help and so the, the the line about helping hands is also very important to me that that's how we show that we are a nation we are a community so I, I always find that piece moves me we have thought about words that sometimes get bandied around like mateship but mateship didn't work for us. We felt that it was probably too masculine, probably too um, overused. So we, we would prefer a, a really obvious symbol like helping hands because that's really what you need to do if someone's in trouble. You've got to extend a helping hand. And, I mean, we saw that with the drought, with people trucking uh, straw from Western Australia to Queensland and, and people coming up from Victoria to help the farmers who were flooded out rebuild their fences and these are genuine expressions of what we think is a is a an Australian value for this process to go forward like you said before we wouldn't need a plebiscite again um, no we wouldn't need you know a referendum or whatever what other steps to, that we need to take now to to get this uh, rolling I think the first step is awareness. We need to get people to know that there is an option. People cruise along generally and 
they'll sing the old version or they won't sing it as they feel fit. But we need to get them to know there is a choice. We could do something different. So our ambition at the moment is to make sure that we achieve that, that people hear of these words, hear of this ambition. And by creating a public awareness and a public groundswell of feeling, we hope to give the government confidence that they can take this step without causing any great distress. And um, we're conscious that this anthem is sort of one of the many strands that are part of reconciliation and voice and treaty and truth. I mean, this is we, we are not as a group trying to do everything, but we think that there is now a really clear moment in history when these things could become um, changed and we would like the anthem. It's such a simple thing that if we do have public support, then let's just get on and do it and change it. And, and who knows, it might create uh, a lot of joy and a lot of hearts and, and we would have something positive to think about in this process, which sometimes gets very muddled and confused. And Martin, I was just wondering as well, you know, along the lines of uh, you know, making some changes to the anthem, do you think that, um, or would there be a way of changing the, the music as well? Because do you think that might sort of still hold a bit of uh, grudgeness or, yes, you know, yes, hold a I, bit of... Yes, I do understand that question and it's one that we've debated, but we feel that... We do have a history with this tune. It has been put to public um, plebiscite. We feel we should stick with that as a as our, our process um, because that's the. It's also the way to get something to change quickly. Um, I mean, if in another twenty years people want a different tune, then that that can happen. It's not. It's not like these symbols are locked in stone and can never be changed. Countries evolve and change, and things differ a lot as well they do they do yeah. and this is a a straightforward change and if we can get public opinion behind it it can happen on that note uh, martin haskett thanks very much for joining us here on calm radio it's been a great opportunity and a great pleasure thank you that was uh dr martin haskett from the recognition and anthem project uh ending that report from karma's damien williams we're going to be going to a song now and then we'll be right back with a quick version of the uh, news from around the country. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. You're listening to Strong Voices this morning. Here with me, Kyle Darling. Now it's time for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from around the country. I'm joined by uh, Karma's Damien Williams. Good morning, Damien. Good morning, Kyle, and good morning to all our listeners. We've got a story this morning in regards to the Aboriginal flag. Uh, what can you tell us about that, Damien? Yeah, um, it's, it's still ongoing about... Uh, uh, people wanting to to use the flag. Um, this report comes from the Guardian um, that uh, MP Labor MP uh, Linda Burney de, um, demands government sort out the Aboriginal flag, um, and she says it is disturbed. Dis- it is disturbed at reports that people have been stopped from using the emblem um, or hit with bills of more than two thousand um, dollars. Miss Burney um, is demanding the federal government take steps to sort out what she she has described as a secret agreement that controls the use of the Aboriginal flag in public. Um, and yeah, she's talking about you know it's unclear um, even if her, her her tattoo of the flag is breaching the copyright as well. Um, the situation is un, untenable. Um, Bernie says, and unthinkable that the use of the Aboriginal flag is now 
governed by a secret agreement that this um, discretion of a for-profit company. Um, so, yeah, like we were talking before, you know, sort of um, pretty hard to like try and um, talk about and um, get across what really is happening. Yeah, because uh, j- just very briefly, obviously, uh, in terms of some of the, the background behind it, uh, literature man Harold Thomas is the copyright owner of the flag. So as the copyright owner, he can determine who can and can't use the flag and stuff mm. like that. And he does have an agreement with uh, Wham Clothing in regards to using the flag on clothing where people then have to, you know, sort of, my understanding is buy a license is sort of the process of, of how that goes. So obviously concerns from from some people and, and still splitting, I guess, some of the community on this area. We do know that uh, the Federal Minister for Aboriginal Affairs, Ken White, was of, I guess, a similar mind until he spoke with Harold Thomas. Uh, um, it, it's obviously still a very interesting situation that I, I perhaps isn't going to go away in, in the near future, mm. as we're seeing. Yeah, and um, yeah, again, it keeps just popping up. Um, all over the place with um, people um, being um, given breach notices and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's a it's a hard topic. It is, and if you haven't had an opportunity to, as we've we've heard from a lot of other individuals, obviously talking about the flag. If you haven't heard, uh, Mr. Ka- yeah, Mr. Uh, Harold Thomas's uh, point of view on 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 the topic, uh, Karma did have an opportunity to sit down and speak with him. Karma's Paul Wiles spoke with him, so yeah. you can head to either our website or our SoundCloud as well to, to hear that side of the story as well. Yeah, exactly. We're gonna. That's going to be it for the news from around the country. Thanks that, Damien. Thank you. Hi, guys. This is Dan Sutton, and you're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. We're going to head into our final story now. I recently spoke with the uh, Jack Arquette, advisor to the Jawan Association, in regards to the uh, first land claim for the uh, the Jowan people in Catherine uh, recently celebrating the milestone of that land claim. Uh, it was the 30-year anniversary. They're celebrating that today. Here's my conversation that I had with uh, Jack Arkit. And I asked him, first of all, just about uh, the lead-up to the actual claim itself and how that process worked. Well, the uh, Jowan land claim was uh, the first of many land claims. Um, under the Land Rights Act, uh, people were eligible to claim Commonwealth unalienated Crown land and parcels thereof. Uh, so, uh, Jowan had registered with the Northern Land Council uh, a desire to claim back their country, Jowan country, and um, the Land Council uh, took field trips out to talk to the senior Jowan and many Jowan people in that meeting. They registered the land claim, the land claim uh, 40-odd years ago, and then the festival celebrates uh, over the last 10 days and a few more days to go, the 30 years handback of the actual title. So the land claim took approximately 10 years for the from the time of the land claim to the grant of the land back to the Jarwin people. Well, the claim was all over the, the National Park because we were entitled to claim the National Park. We weren't entitled to claim the town ca- uh, council boundaries or any private property because uh, or any uh, government leases on land like Syro, etc. because uh, they were unclaimable. Uh, but the recognition in the early report and the recommendations of the Land Commissioner here acknowledged the anthropological findings that the township of Catherine belonged to the Jarwin people, as reported to him by anthropologists from the NLC. 
Now, yeah, that's a matter we still need to sort out, and uh, that's going through the due process with no title. However, Darwin got to about two-thirds of their country back that they actually claimed, and um, it, it, it now spreads up to north of the Catherine Gorge and the Gorge system uh, into central Armland and across to Barramundi Gorge in uh, uh, Kakadu Stage 2. So uh, Jim Bath has now been uh, handed back to the Jarwin through a land claim process. So uh, Jarwin has um, it's one of the biggest landholders in, uh, in the territory in terms of the land that's been um, uh, awarded back to Jarwin through the land claim process. And... Tell us a bit about, I guess, the response from the wider community. I understand there was a bit of a split within the community in terms of, you know, what that land claim would mean or, you know, sort of the potential impacts that perhaps people were afraid might happen from that. Well, it was trying times because I was I was here and I was I witnessed and I. The brutality and the racism that took place in terms of the the redneck um, views that people held at the time. Uh, there, there was uh, rights for whites groups that marched in the streets. There was um, a, a mob called uh, Twange, you know, which was abbreviated in the Society for the Prevention of Niggers Getting Everything. There were shots fired over uh, senior elders' heads. Uh, by a, a silly man with a gun. There were there were accusations and allegations that Darwin would win the country back and close the the national park off uh, from uh, being used as a tourism uh, facility. All these lies were predicated in the community by uh, non-supporters of Darwin actually giving evidence and proving to the land commissioner <clears throat> that it is their land and. Their rights to the land should be recognised by uh, white man's law and a title should be awarded to them. Uh, Jarwin elders gave conditions to the land commissioner that they would lease the park back for 99 years, which they've done. They would put in place at least uh, a management system with a board of directors uh, and the leaseback arrangement and the plan of management is all working successfully and being reviewed in five-year intervals. The Jarwin have uh, taken over in Nipmuc Tours and have bought Wernasani out from Travel North and are uh, creating a, a hell of a lot of employment and training opportunities. Uh, so everything that Jarwin had said that the elders had in their vision through the land claim process has come to fruition, but there's still a lot of work to do in the organisations up and running and delivering uh, good outcomes for the Jalan people. And and talking about those outcomes, how would you describe what this determination has actually meant for the Jalan people, but then also the the actual community of Catherine over these years? Well, the Gorge is a a money spinner. The Gorge is a jewel in the crown of the Northern Territory as far as Jalan are concerned. Uh, Jarwin have responsibilities to care for country, but they also have a, uh, said from day one uh, when the land came back that they are willing to share their country. The country can't be compromised if there is um, uh, silly proposals to do things that are not uh, encompassed by environmental concerns. But the, the employment and training, the caring for country, the 
tourism stuff is all going uh, really well. And to me, it's the best negotiated leaseback of a national park in Australia, and it, it stands head and shoulders over others. The board is uh, 12 people. Nine of those have to be Jarwin. The, Jarwin, uh, the board chairperson must be a Jarwin. All these things, the elders made sure that, that they were not going to lose control of their country once their land came back. All the employment and training has been happening and will continue. Uh, the tourism stuff is being, and the country is being shared, and the tourism stuff is uh, uh, holding its own and, and doing quite well with Nipmuc Tours. Uh, and, and Jarwin as an association gets a, a leg up in terms of other enterprises being established within the Jarwin Association Incorporated, uh, like a construction uh, and housing and CDP and uh, many other things that provide services to Jawan people and elders that uh, provides a, a much more better supplementary way of life rather than people just living on the pension or, or, or getting job start, uh, new start, sorry, uh, and uh, trying to end, make ends meet. <clears throat> We're trying to make life a little bit more comfortable by helping out our people. So it's a success story as far as the Darwin people are concerned. Uh, on that particular note, do you think then it is essentially that perfect example of, of what happens when, you know, Aboriginal people are able to, uh, you know, have control over their destinies, you know, have the opportunity to be able to, you know, make change through this space and, you know, it's an operating country. But like you said, also, you know, creating employment, creating, you know, job opportunities, creating, uh, you know, different avenues for learning and growing and things like that. There's no doubt in my mind, many Aboriginal groups uh, and, and uh, clans and tribes uh, collectively around the Territory, and I, I don't speak for Central Australia, but certainly the top end in my, with my experience, all have the same vision that Darwin have in terms of uh, not wanting handouts and wanting to get things developed and, and, and would look to, wherever possible, engage in economic, uh, in economic development, which creates employment and training, which creates an income and which provides a healthy lifestyle, living on country and caring for country. They're just not given the opportunity by governments, and governments need to recognise that. And I'm talking about all persuasions of government, whether it's in Canberra, local government, or in the Territory. Strong voices.